Welcome to Pete Soup. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy. In this episode, we're going to cover eating disorders. It can be a pretty broad topic, so we'll focus on the big two, anorexia and bulimia, with a little bit about red flags for disordered eating in general. Eating disorders are hard to diagnose, even harder to treat, and have the highest mortality rates of any mental health diagnosis, as high as 10-15% to 15% for anorexia. For context, untreated diphtheria is less than 10%, and pertussis in infants, which we all worry about for a good reason, is less than 4%. Eating disorders are sneaky, which can make it hard to make a diagnosis. Most people don't suddenly stop eating altogether or start binging and purging five times a week out of nowhere. The behaviors that turn into eating disorders start small. A missed meal here and there, exercising more, a few extra trips to the bathroom, all of which can go unnoticed, or, in the case of calorie cutting and more exercise, even be encouraged and reinforced. Who wouldn't be happy to see their friend or family member show an interest in being healthier? There's actually some evidence that patients who start out overweight or obese are at a higher risk for a delayed diagnosis of an eating disorder, in no small part because in the beginning it seems like they're doing the right things for themselves. Obviously not everybody who starts focusing more on diet and health habits is going to progress to an eating disorder. Most of us, me included, could probably stand to cut a few calories and get some more exercise. The patients with eating disorders are the ones who cross the line from healthy habits into maladaptive behaviors and obsessions that can do a lot of damage. The lead-up to that line brings us into some of the early warning signs of disordered eating. Patients start showing abnormal eating behaviors, which can be almost anything and include being secretive around meals, intermittently binge eating, and cutting out entire food groups like a sudden switch to veganism. Again, most of these things can happen somewhere on the normal spectrum and not be tied to any kind of disordered eating. The pattern matters much more than any one behavior. A fixation on body image is also a major part of all eating disorders, but that's yet another area where it can be tough to separate what's pathological from what's normal adolescent development. In later stages, things are more obviously wrong, and patients with disordered eating start having weight loss or slower-than-expected weight gain, and their poor nutrition can lead to growth stunting and puberty delays. Most of those early warning signs are up to the patient's family and friends to notice, and as a clinician, it can be hard to pick up on an eating disorder unless someone reports a concern or you start seeing changes in the growth chart or on your exam. When you take a history from a patient with a suspected eating disorder, the details matter most. Have them walk you through their diet and exercise patterns and try to get them to be as specific as possible. Go over any recent stressors and ask the usual adolescent medicine questions about sex, drugs, alcohol, and any potential abuse. Even though it might seem uncomfortable, you should absolutely talk about how they feel about their body image and weight, and sometimes come right out and ask if they think they're overweight. It's also a good idea to review the family history for anyone with an eating disorder and investigate what kind of growth patterns other family members had. A 15-year-old who's below average height and hasn't hit puberty yet is a lot less concerning for disordered eating if she comes from a family of petite late bloomers. Like with any sensitive subject, be sure to talk to the patient alone to avoid them clamming up in front of their parents. And it can also be pretty helpful to talk to the parents without the child in the room to get the most detailed picture possible. Physical exam findings are a little bit more variable depending on the specific eating disorder. Any eating disorder patient can have slow heart rates as the body goes into parasympathetic overdrive to conserve energy along with orthostatic changes in their heart rate and blood pressure from being volume depleted. 
In bulimia, the classic findings, especially on test questions, are calluses and abrasions on the knuckles, dental erosions, enlarged parotid glands, and loss of the gag reflex, all of which develop due to repeatedly inducing vomiting. In anorexia, patients can have hair loss, dry, pale skin, brittle nails, and easy bruising all related to malnutrition. When they get to the point of severe malnutrition, they can also develop lanugo, which is fine, downy body hair. Lanugo is a completely normal finding in newborns, and the best explanation I've seen as to why it redevelops in malnutrition is that it's an effort to retain heat when there isn't enough fat to provide insulation. Honestly, I'm not sure how much evidence there is to back that up, but it's at least a plausible reason. Now we can start getting into specific eating disorders. We'll focus on anorexia and bulimia since they're the most likely to be relevant to the general pediatrician, but it's important to remember that they aren't the only eating disorders. When DSM-5 came out, it increased the number of eating disorder diagnoses from 3 all the way up to 8. There are 6 specific diagnoses, pica, rumination disorder, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, binge eating disorder, anorexia, and bulimia, along with 2 broader diagnoses, other specified feeding or eating disorder, and unspecified feeding or eating disorder. They all have their own set of diagnostic criteria, complications, and treatment options, but you're not likely to need to know too much detail about the other ones unless you're going into adolescent medicine or psychiatry. Bulimia is the classic binge-purge eating disorder. It has a lifetime prevalence of around 3%, and in terms of morbidity and mortality, is less severe than anorexia. To make the diagnosis, DSM-5 says five criteria have to be met. First, patients will have episodes of binge eating, which is defined by the DSM as an amount definitely larger than most people would eat in a similar amount of time under similar circumstances. That's a little vague and probably applies to a lot of people at one time or another, which is why the definition also includes a sense of lack of control over their eating during the episode to characterize true binging. Second, Binges are accompanied by inappropriate compensatory behaviors, purging, to prevent weight gain. Most of the time we think about induced vomiting, but the compensation can also be fasting, misusing medications like laxatives or stimulants, or excessive exercise. Third, the episodes of binge eating and compensation have to occur an average of once a week over the course of three months. For the final two criteria, the patient's self-evaluation has to be unduly influenced by body shape and weight, and the behavioral disturbances can't occur exclusively during episodes of anorexia. If a patient is missing any one of those criteria, it doesn't mean he or she doesn't have an eating disorder, just that it doesn't quite qualify as bulimia. To be perfectly honest, the other major eating disorder, anorexia, is the absolute worst. I mentioned at the top of the episode that it has a mortality rate of 10-15%, to 15%, which is the highest of any mental illness, and it's really hard to treat. Among adults, anorexia is at least twice as prevalent in women as in men, but according to a survey published in the Archives of General Psychiatry in 2011, the rates are identical in adolescents. The DSM-5 has three criteria that have to be met for a diagnosis of anorexia. First, there has to be a restriction of energy intake relative to requirements, which leads to significantly low body weight for age, sex, development, and physical health. That significantly low description is a change from the DSM-4, which cited being below 85% ideal body weight as an example, but providers latched onto it as a threshold, which probably led to some misdiagnoses. 
Now the diagnosis of anorexia can be made at above 85% ideal body weight, as long as the weight is lower than you'd expect for that particular patient. Second, patients with anorexia have a disturbance in how they experience their body weight or shape. An undue influence of body weight or shape on self-evaluation, or a persistent lack of recognition of the seriousness of their low weight. Finally, there has to be an intense fear of gaining weight or becoming fat, or persistent behaviors that interfere with weight gain. The additional focus on behavior is another update in DSM-5, and is helpful for making the diagnosis even if the patient is in denial, or in more severe cases, giving you outright false information to try to avoid being diagnosed. If you first learned about anorexia before the DSM-5 came out, you might have noticed that secondary amenorrhea is no longer part of the diagnostic criteria. There are a few reasons for that. While amenorrhea can definitely be a feature of anorexia and severe malnutrition, it is absolutely not unique to the disease and has no impact on treatment or outcomes. Including secondary amenorrhea in the criteria also made it more complicated to diagnose males and girls who hadn't reached puberty. So while amenorrhea and return of menses can have some utility as a marker of nutritional status, it really doesn't matter in making the diagnosis in the first place. Once you diagnose an eating disorder, the next step is deciding how to treat it, starting with whether or not the patient needs to be hospitalized. The consensus admission criteria, meaning the things that will be on an exam, are bradycardia with a heart rate less than 40 beats per minute, blood pressure less than 80 over 60 or lightheadedness, any arrhythmia on EKG, weight less than 70% of ideal body weight or BMI below 14 or 15, signs of cardiovascular or renal compromise, significant dehydration, other medical complications like electrolyte disturbances, seizures, or hypoglycemia, or, as always, outpatient treatment failure. There is some room for adjustment around those criteria. The Children's Hospital where I work adds loss of 5% or more body weight within 10 days, acute food refusal, and eating less than 500 calories per day over the last 3 days to the list. But the idea is to identify the patients who are at the highest risk of having things go badly in the very near future. In the hospital, eating disorder management focuses on close monitoring and reestablishing nutrition. Patients have their vital signs checked frequently and might be on a cardiac monitor if there's concern for an arrhythmia. The biggest area of intervention, aside from nutrition, is probably behavioral. Again, there are variations from hospital to hospital, but every protocol I've seen gives eating disorder patients limitations on physical activity to prevent overexercising, strict rules about phone and internet usage, and a constant one-to-one -one sitter to limit food refusal, purging, and other bad behaviors. The vast majority of patients also get a nasogastric tube placed to ensure that one way or another, they'll get some kind of nutrition. As you might expect, putting lots of unbreakable rules in place while you're treating a disease where patients desperately want to have control is not always well received by the patient, but it does help things start to turn around. Reintroduction of nutrition is another thing we monitor in the hospital, especially for the most malnourished patients, because of the risk of refeeding syndrome. Refeeding syndrome was first described in prisoners of war and Holocaust survivors after World War II and is a potentially life-threatening condition that results when severely malnourished patients receive aggressive nutritional rehabilitation. Starting with some background physiology, even when no nutrition is coming in, the body still has to use energy to keep its basic functions going, and it works its way through different energy sources. 
After the first one to three days without food, the glycogen stores in the liver are depleted and the body decreases insulin production to keep the blood glucose from dropping too low. In about a week, it starts breaking down fat and protein for gluconeogenesis, and after 8 to 10 days, the energy source shifts again to ketone bodies. After 30 or more days, about all that's left to use is muscle, so the body starts to break that down for fuel. While all of this is happening, the ions in the body like magnesium, phosphorus, and potassium shift in and out of the cells to maintain homeostasis, even though the body as a whole is depleted of salts and pretty much everything else. If you put nutrients back into that starving body all at once, it can be a major shock to the system. Because insulin production was down-regulated, almost any intake can trigger hyperglycemia, fluid shifts, and dehydration before the pancreas gets back on track. The liver is ecstatic to see all the new glucose and amino acids coming in and shifts into anabolic mode, taking those building blocks and producing glycogen and proteins. If you remember back to biochemistry class, all those processes from transporting molecules into cells to building more complex structures and shipping them back out to the body all take different ions as ingredients, co-transporters, and cofactors. That means all the potassium, magnesium, and phosphorus that was out in the bloodstream to maintain homeostasis gets pulled into the cells and put to work, which can cause severe electrolyte abnormalities and lead to arrhythmia and death if they aren't appropriately corrected. The symptoms of refeeding syndrome can be almost anything, from nausea and vomiting all the way through to arrhythmia, respiratory depression, and death. And in addition to being clinically vague, refeeding syndrome is also historically hard to study. Because of that, most of the data on monitoring and management come from consensus expert opinion. We know that the risk factors for refeeding syndrome include fasting for five or more days, chronic diuretic use, chronic pancreatitis, significant vomiting or diarrhea, greater than 10% weight loss over one to two months, and other complex health needs or chronic infections. When it comes to prevention and monitoring, the general recommendation is to keep an accurate calorie count with at least daily lab monitoring during the initial reintroduction of feeds. Refeeding should also be done slowly. The recommendations I found varied from 20 to 75% of estimated calorie needs, with the lowest amounts for the highest risk patients. Once you decide your risk level, lab frequency, and initial refeeding rate, most protocols recommend advancing the calories by 10-25% to 25% each day until you reach the goal sometime in the first week of treatment. There isn't a lot of strong evidence to point to any one best way to collect any electrolyte problems, aside from giving supplements over a few days since there's a good chance you're dealing with a large total body deficit compared to what the blood levels are showing. If signs of refeeding do develop, it's also important to reduce the amount of calories you're giving so the body has a chance to recover and adjust. After diagnosis and acute management of eating disorders comes the really hard part, outpatient and maintenance therapy. This is the part of the episode where I have to tell you that eating disorders have depressingly high relapse rates. A systematic review published by Tamara Behrens, Ninki Budenstra, and Anne-Marie Van Elberg in the November 2018 issue of Current Opinion in Psychiatry found that 31% of patients with anorexia relapsed after treatment, and studies show pretty similar numbers for bulimia. For as harmful as they are, eating disorders are egosyntonic. The people who have them don't feel like there's anything wrong, and the disordered eating behaviors usually make them feel more comfortable and in control. After completing treatment, patients can be doing well until a new stressor nudges them back toward their old habits and onto the path towards relapse. 
residential psychiatric treatment for eating disorders is also a double-edged sword. On one hand, patients get round-the-clock help with meal planning, therapy sessions, and supervision. But on the other, a group of adolescents who are typically intelligent, driven, and goal-oriented have a chance to get together and teach each other new tricks to keep their disorder going strong. The evidence on what works best for eating disorder treatment is still pretty limited. Family-based therapy has the largest evidence base, but its utility is limited by a lack of qualified practitioners. Family-based therapy is an outpatient program that involves the patient's parents as support, and there's a nice article about it by Renee Reinecke in a 2017 edition of Adolescent Health, Medicine, and Therapeutics. As a quick summary, there are three phases. In the first phase, the focus is on restoring physical health. Parents are completely responsible for meal planning, supervision, and activity regulation, but they have support from the treatment supervisor and nutritionists, so they aren't just thrown in blindly. Phase 1 continues until there's a good pattern of weight gain and the child is eating without much resistance to parental involvement. In the second phase, responsibility gradually shifts back toward the patient. It's an incremental process, maybe letting the patient choose one part of a meal, then moving on to a full meal, then progressing from there. There's also a low threshold to shift back to a phase 1 structure if there are any signs of backsliding. Once the patient is consistently making good decisions, they can move on to phase three, which is all about maintenance. The patient, family, and therapist review the progress that's been made and look ahead to what challenges might be coming and how to manage them with appropriate coping skills. Clearly, family-based therapy is a little more involved than that one paragraph rundown, but that should cover the main points. That also wraps up our episode on eating disorders. For take-home points, remember to be suspicious about eating disorders in anyone, not just adolescent girls, with changes in their diet or exercise patterns that start to look more extreme than just trying to get healthy. Secretive and ritualized behaviors and changes in growth patterns should also throw up big red flags. When you do suspect an eating disorder, get as detailed a history as possible about diet and exercise habits, family history of eating disorders, and the patient's own body image in addition to all the usual sensitive adolescent history. For specific eating disorders, Bulimia has episodes of binge eating followed by compensatory behaviors like excessive exercise or induced vomiting, which test questions will point you toward with things like trips to the bathroom after meals, bad breath, dental decay, and calluses on the knuckles. Anorexia is classically characterized by restricted intake with decreased body mass and behaviors that interfere with weight gain. Regardless of diagnosis, patients who are more significantly malnourished or who have signs of physiologic instability like hypotension or bradycardia should be hospitalized for their initial treatment and monitored for refeeding syndrome. If signs of refeeding syndrome develop, namely drops in magnesium, potassium, or phosphorus, reduce the daily calorie intake and supplement the electrolytes while the body adjusts to being in a catabolic state again. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, give us a rating wherever you find your podcasts. To keep up to date on new episodes or pass along any comments or suggestions, you can find me on Twitter at pedsoup, P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P, or reach me by email at pedsoup at gmail.com. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back next time with more Pedsoup.